Essays in Idleness What strange folly to beguile the tedious hours like this all day before my inkstone, jotting down at random the idle thoughts that cross my mind. To be born into this world of ours, it seems, brings with it so much to long for. The rank of emperor is, of course, unspeakably exalted. Even his remotest descendants fill one with awe, having sprung from no mere human seed. Needless to say, the great ruler, and even the lesser nobles who are granted attendant guards to serve them, are also thoroughly magnificent. Their children and grandchildren, too, are still impressive, even if they have come down in the world. As for those of lesser degree, although they may make good according to their rank, and put on airs and consider themselves special, they are really quite pathetic. No one could be less enviable than a monk. Seishonagon wrote that people treat them like unfeeling lumps of wood, and this is perfectly true. And there is nothing impressive about the way those with power will throw their weight around. As the holy man Soga, I think, remarked, fame and fortune are an affliction for a monk and violate the Buddha's teachings. There is much to admire, though, in a dedicated recluse. It is most important to present well in both appearance and bearing. One never tires of spending time with someone whose speech is attractive and pleasing to the ear and who does not talk overmuch. There is nothing worse than when someone you thought impressive reveals himself as lacking in sensibility. Status and personal appearance are things one is born with, after all, but surely the inner man can always be improved with effort. It is a great shame to see a fine, upstanding fellow fall in with low and ugly types who easily run rings around him, and all for want of cultivation and learning. A man should learn the orthodox literature write poetry in Chinese as well as Japanese, and study music, and should ideally also be a model to others in his familiarity with ceremonial court customs and precedents. He should write a smooth, fair hand, carry the rhythm well when songs are sung at banquets, and when offered sake, make a show of declining it, but nevertheless be able to drink. A ruler who forgets the ways of great emperors of old, who cares nothing for the woes of the people or the decay of the state, but instead takes pride in luxurious indulgence and generally throws his weight around in high-handed fashion, is actually making a great fool of himself. As the Kujo minister of the right wrote in his precepts, in all things, from court costume to horses and carriages, use what is to hand, never strive for beauty. Retired Emperor Juntoku also wrote concerning court procedures, the emperor should clothe him simply.
No matter how splendid in every way, there is something dreadfully lacking in a man who does not pursue the art of love. He is, to coin the old phrase, like a beautiful wine cup that lacks a base. The elegant thing is for a lover to wander aimlessly hither and yon, drenched with the frosts or dews of night, tormented by fears of his parents' reproaches and the censure of the world, the heart beset with uncertainties, yet for all that sleeping often alone, though always fitfully. On the other hand, he shouldn't lose himself to love too thoroughly, or gain the reputation of being putty in women's hands. It is an admirable thing in a man to keep his mind on the world to come, and remain heedful of the Buddhist path. A man who meets with misfortune and sorrow should not shave his head and become a monk on impulse. He does better to quietly shut his gate and seclude himself unobtrusively, expecting nothing of each passing day. Counselor Akimoto is reputed to have wished to gaze upon the moon in blameless exile. Precisely so. It is better for even the high-born, not to mention those of lowly station, to have no children. Princess Kanyakira, the Kujo chief minister, and the Hana Zono minister of the left, all wished to see their line die out. The Somedono minister also remarked in the tale of Yotsuki, it is best to have no descendants. It is most unfortunate when they prove inferior to their forebears. Prince Shotoku, too, when having his own tomb prepared, is reputed to have ordered that it be trimmed here and cut back there, for I aim to leave no descendants. If our life did not fade and vanish, like the dews of Adashino's graves, or the drifting smoke from Toribe's burning grounds, but lingered on forever, how little the world would move us. It is the ephemeral nature of things that makes them wonderful. Among all living creatures, it is man that lives longest. The brief day fly dies before evening, Summer's cicada knows neither spring nor autumn. What a glorious luxury it is to taste life to the full for even a single year. If you constantly regret life's passing, even a thousand long years will seem but the dream of a night. Why cling to a life which cannot last forever, only to arrive at ugly old age? The longer you live, the greater your share of shame. It is most seemly to die before forty at the latest. Once past this age, people develop an urge to mix with others without the least shame at their own unsightliness. They spend their dwindling years fussing adoringly over their children and grandchildren, hoping to live long enough to see them make good in the world. Their greed for the things of this world grows ever deeper, 
till they lose all ability to be moved by life's pathos and become really quite disgraceful. Nothing so distracts the human heart as sexual desire. How foolish men's hearts are. Aroma, for instance, is a mere transient thing, yet a whiff of delightful incense from a woman's robes will always excite a man, though he knows perfectly well that it is just a passing effect of robe smoking. The wizard priest of Kume is said to have lost his supernatural powers when he spied the white legs of a woman as she squatted, washing clothes. I can quite believe it. After all, the beautiful, plump, glowing flesh of a woman's arm or leg is quite a different matter from some artificial allurement. Beautiful hair on a woman will draw a man's gaze, but we can judge what manner of person she is and the nature of her sensibility even by hearing her speak from behind a screen. A mere unintended glimpse of a woman can distract a man's heart, and if a woman sleeps fitfully and is prepared to endure impossible difficulties, heedless of her own well-being, it is all because her mind is on love. Yes, indeed. The ways of love lie deep in us. Many are the allurements of our senses, yet we can distance ourselves from them all. But among them, this one alone seems without exception to plague us all, young and old, wise and foolish. So it is that we have those tales of how a woman's hair can snare and hold even an elephant, or how the rutting stag of autumn will always be drawn by the sound of a flute made from the wood of a woman's shoe. We must discipline ourselves to be constantly prudent and vigilant, lest we fall into this trap. Though a home is of course merely a transient habitation, a place that is set up in beautiful taste to suit its owner is a delightful thing. Even the moonlight is so much the more moving when it shines into a house where a refined person dwells in tranquil elegance. There is nothing fashionable or showy about the place, it is true, yet the grove of trees is redolent of age. The plants in the carefully untended garden carry a hint of delicate feelings, while the veranda and open weave fence are tastefully done. And inside the house, the casually disposed things have a tranquil, old-fashioned air. It is almost refined. How ugly and depressing to see a house that has employed a bevy of craftsmen to work everything up to a fine finish, where all the household items set out for proud display are rare and precious, foreign, or Japanese objects, and where even the plants in the garden are clipped and contorted rather than left to grow as they will. How could anyone live for long in such a place? The merest glimpse will provoke the thought that all this could go up in smoke in an instant. Yes, on the whole, you can tell a great deal about the owner from his home. 
The later Tokudaiji minister once had rope strung over the roof of the main house to stop the kites from roosting on it. What could be wrong with having kites on your roof? This shows what manner of man he is, exclaimed the poet monk, Saigyo, and it is said he never called there again. I was reminded of the story when I noticed that Prince Ayanoki Koji had laid rope over his Kosaka residence. Someone told me, however, that it was because he pitied the frogs in his pond when he observed how crows gathered on the roof to catch them. I was most impressed. Perhaps the Tokudaiji minister, too, might have some, had some reason for acting as he did. One day in the tenth month, I went to call on someone in a remote mountain village beyond Kurosunu. Making my way along the mossy path, I came at length to the lonely hut where he lived. There was not a sound except for the soft drip of water from a bamboo pipe buried deep in fallen leaves. The vase on the altar shelf, with its haphazard assortment of chrysanthemums and sprigs of autumn leaves, bespoke someone's presence. Moved, I said to myself, one could live like this. But my mood was then somewhat spoiled by noticing at the far end of the garden a large mandarin tree, branches bowed with fruit, that was firmly protected by a stout fence. If only that tree weren't there, I thought. What happiness to sit in intimate conversation with someone of like mind, warmed by candid discussion of the amusing and fleeting ways of this world. But such a friend is hard to find, and instead you sit there doing your best to fit in with whatever the other is saying, feeling deeply alone. There is some pleasure to be had from agreeing with the other in general talk that interests you both, but it's better if he takes a slightly different position from yours. No, I can't agree with that, you'll say to each other competitively, and you'll fall into arguing the matter out. This sort of lively discussion is a pleasant way to pass the idle hours, but in fact most people tend to grumble about things different from oneself. And though you can put up with the usual boring platitudes, such men are far indeed from the true friend after your own heart, and leave you feeling quite forlorn. It is a most wonderful comfort to sit alone beneath a lamp, books spread before you, and commune with someone from the past whom you have never met. As to books... Those moving volumes of Wenxuan, the Wenji of Bai Juyi, the words of Laozi and Zhuangzi. There are many moving works from our own land, too, by scholars of former times. Japanese poetry is a most delightful thing. The doings of lowly folk. Mountain woodsmen and so forth are beguiling when expressed in poetry, and even the terrifying wild boar comes 
quite tamed and elegant by the phrase, where the wild boar lays his head. Some of today's poems could be said to achieve a nice turn of phrase here and there, but somehow they just do not have the old poetry's subtle flavor of feeling that resonates beyond the words. Kino Tsurayuki's No Twining Thread My Heart in the Kokkingshu is said to be mere dross, but I do not think that any poet today could match it. So many poems of that time have a similar sort of cast and language to this. It is hard to see why people should single out Tsurayuki's poem for criticism. In the tale of Genji, the second line is given slightly differently. The same is said of the Shinko Kinkshu poem. Even the soul pine is lonely on its peak. And it's true, one could find the cast of it a little awkward. Yet, Ayanaga records in his diary that the poem was to be judged to be good in a poetry competition, and His Majesty spoke of it later as particularly impressive. It is sometimes said that the way of Japanese poetry alone has remained unchanged since the old days, but I wonder, the old poetic words and epithets that people today still use in poetry have a different ring from those same words in the poems of earlier poets. The old poems were simple and unaffected, and had a purity and beauty of caste and great depth of feeling. There is also much moving language in the songs of Ryojin Hisho. Somehow, even the most casual words of those from earlier times have an impressive ring to them. Going on a journey, whatever the destination, makes you feel suddenly awake and alive to everything. There are so many new things to see in rustic places and country villages as you wander about looking. It is also delightful to send word to those back home in the capital asking for news and adding reminders to be sure and see this or that matter. In such places, you are particularly inclined to be attentive to all you see. You even notice the fine quality of things you've brought with you, and sometimes someone's artistic talents or beauty will delight you more than they usually would. Withdrawing quietly to a retreat at a temple or shrine is also delightful. Kagura is wonderfully refined and elegant. As to musical instruments in general, the flute and the little hichiriki have the best tone. And one is always happy to hear the biwa and the six-stringed koto. When you are on a retreat at a mountain temple, concentrating on your devotions, the hours are never tedious, and the heart feels cleansed and purified. It is an excellent thing to live modestly, shun luxury and wealth, 
and not lust after fame and fortune. Rare has been the wise man who is rich. In China once there was a man by the name of Xu Yu, who owned nothing and even drank directly from his cupped hands. Seeing this, someone gave him a singing gourd to use as a cup. He hung it in a tree, but when he heard it sing in the wind one day, he threw it away, annoyed by the sound it made, and went back to drinking his water from his hands. What a free, pure spirit! Sun Chen had no bedclothes to sleep under in the winter months, only a bundle of straw which he slept in at night and put away each morning. The Chinese wrote these stories to hand down to later times because they found them so impressive. No one bothers to tell such tales in our country. The changing seasons are moving in every way. Everyone seems to feel that it is above all autumn that moves the heart to tears. And there is some truth in this, yet surely it is spring that stirs the heart more profoundly. Then, birdsong is full of the feel of spring. The plants beneath the hedges bud into leaf in the warm sunlight. The slowly deepening season brings soft mists while the blossoms at last begin to open, only to meet with ceaseless winds and rain that send them flurrying restlessly to earth. Until the leaves appear on the boughs, the heart is endlessly perturbed. The scented flowering orange is famously evocative, but it is above all plum blossom that has the power to carry you back to moments of cherished memory. The exquisite caria, the hazy clusters of wisteria blossom, all these things linger in the heart. Someone has said that at the time of the Buddha's birthday and the Kalmo festival in the fourth month, when the trees are cool with luxuriant new leaf, One is particularly moved by the pathos of things and by a longing for others, and indeed it is true. And who could not be touched to melancholy in the fifth month when the sweet flag iris leaves are laid on roofs and the rice seedlings are planted out and the water rail's knocking call is heard? The sixth month is also moving, with white evening glory blooming over the walls of poor dwellings and the smoke from smoldering smudge fires. The purifications of the sixth month are also delightful. The festival of Tanabata is wonderfully elegant. Indeed, so many things happen together in autumn. The nights grow slowly more chill, wild geese come crying over, and when the bush clover begins to yellow, the early rice is harvested and hung to dry. The morning after a typhoon has blown through is also delightful. Writing this, I realize that all this has already been spoken of long ago in the tale of Genji and the pillow book. 
But that is no reason not to say it again. After all, things thought but left unsaid only fester inside you. So I let my brush run on like this for my own foolish solace. These pages deserve to be torn up and discarded, after all, and are not something others will ever see. To continue, the sight of a bare wintry landscape is almost as lovely as autumn. It is delightful to see fallen autumn leaves scattered among the plants by the water's edge, or vapor rising from the garden stream on a morning white with frost. It is also especially moving to observe everyone bustling about at year's end, preparing for the new year. And then there is the forlornly touching sight of the waning moon around the 20th day, hung in a clear, cold sky, although people consider it too dreary to look at. The litany of Buddha names and the presentation of tributes are thoroughly moving and magnificent, and in all, in fact, all the numerous court ceremonies and events at around this time, taking place as they do amidst the general end-of-year bustle, present an impressive sight. The way the worship of the four directions follows so quickly upon great demon expulsion is wonderful too. In the thick darkness of New Year's Eve, people light pine torches and rush about so fast that their feet virtually skim the ground, making an extraordinary racket for some reason, and knocking on everyone's doors until late at night. But then at last, around dawn, All grows quiet, and you savor the touching moment of saying farewell to the old year. I was moved to find that in the East they still perform the ritual for dead souls on the night when the dead are said to return, although these days this has ceased to be done in the capital. And so, watching the new year dawn in the sky, you are stirred by a sense of utter newness, although the sky looks no different from yesterday's. It is also touching to see the happy sight of New Year's pines gaily decorating the houses all along the main streets. A certain recluse monk once remarked, I have relinquished all that ties me to the world, but the one thing that still haunts me is the beauty of the sky. I can quite see why he would feel this. You can find solace for all things by looking at the moon. Someone once declared that there is nothing more delightful than the moon, while another disagreed, claiming that dew is the most moving, a charming debate. Surely there is nothing that isn't moving, in fact, depending on circumstance. Not only the moon and blossoms, but the wind in particular, can stir people's hearts. The sight of a clear stream breaking against rocks is always delightful, whatever the season. 
I was truly moved when I read the words of the Chinese poem that run, Day and night, the Yuan and Xiang go flowing ever east, never pausing for a grieving man. Then there's Shi Kang, who wrote how, roving among mountain and stream, his heart delighted to see the fish and birds. Nothing provides such balm for the heart as wandering somewhere far from the world of men, in a place of pure water and fresh leaf. One yearns for the old world in every way. Modern fashions just seem to grow more and more vulgar. The most beautifully, finely crafted wooden utensils are those from the old days. As for letters, those old ones on reused scraps are written in wonderful language. Everyday speech is also going from bad to worse. Someone who remembers the old days once remarked, back then people used to say, lift the carriage or raise the flame. But now it is always lift up the carriage and raise up the flame. It is also a great shame the way that instead of the old groundsmen to the standing lights, people now say light up the lamps, and they will insist on shortening the imperial audience chamber for the sutra lectures to simply the imperial lecture room. For all the falling off of those latter days, the sublime ninefold palace still remains marvelously unsullied by the world. Places such as the dew platform and the imperial breakfast room, or such and such hall or gate, have a splendid ring to them, while even names such as Kojitomi, Koitajiki, or Taki Takayarito which can refer to things found in the houses of commoners as well, sound wonderful. All in place for the night watch in the gallery is a marvelous phrase. A call, haste to the lamps, when the lights are to be lit in the imperial bedchamber, is also wonderful. The spectacle of the leader directing the assembled nobles in palace ceremonies and the smug faces of the lesser officials who are so used to taking part in these things are also enjoyable. It is also amusing to witness them dozing off in corners during ceremonies on those long, cold nights. The Tokudaiji minister once remarked that the bell rung in the sacred mirror room has the most marvelous and elegant sound. The seclusion of the high priestess at Nonomiya was a most refined and delightful thing. It is also interesting that she must avoid Buddhist words such as Sutra or the Buddha, replacing them with child within and dyed paper. All shrines to the gods have a compelling air of refinement. There is something quite special about the sight of the venerable old shrine groves and the sacred fences surrounding the shrines themselves, and the way sacred paper streamers are tied to the boughs of the sakaki tree are quite splendid. The most delightful shrines are Ise, Kamo, Kasuga, 
Hirano, Sumiyoshi, Miwa, Kibune, Yoshida, Oharano, Matsoi, and Umenomiya. This world is changeable as the deeps and shallows of Osuka River. Time passes, what was here is gone. Joy and grief visit by turns. Once splendid places change to abandoned wastelands, and even the same house as of old is now home to different people. The peach and the plum tree utter nothing. With whom can we speak of past things? Still more moving in its transience is the ruin of some fine residence of former times, whose glory we never saw. It is deeply poignant to see the Kyogoku Dono and Hojoji Temple, and witness there the hopes of the man who built them, now so transfigured. The Mido Dono created these magnificent buildings and donated many of his estates to the temple, full of plans that his family would continue to act as regents for future emperors and retain its worldly power. Could he have dreamed then that an age would come when all that he had set up would lie in such ruin? The temple gates and the kondo were still standing until recently, but the south gate burned in the Showa era. The kondo later collapsed, and no attempt had been made to rebuild it. Only the Muryoju Hall still stands in its former state. With inside it, an awe-inspiring row of nine fifteen-foot-tall images of the Buddha. It is moving, too, to see the calligraphy by Grand Counselor Kose and the doors with Kaneyuki's writing still clearly visible. The Hokkaido is apparently still standing as well. For how much longer, I wonder? In places where such remnants no longer exist, one can sometimes still see foundation stones in the ground, but none now know what buildings these once were. And so we see how fickle is the world in all things, for those who would plan for a time they will not live to see. How mutable the flower of the human heart, a fluttering blossom gone before the breezes touch. So we recall the bygone years when the heart of another was our close companion, each dear word that stirred us then still unforgotten, and yet it is the way of things that the beloved should move into worlds beyond our own, a parting far sadder than from the dead. Thus did Mosey grieve over a white thread that the dye would alter forever, and at the crossroads young Ju lamented the path's parting ways. In retired Emperor Horikawa's collection of 100 poems, we read, Where once I called on her, the garden fence is now in ruins. Flowering there, I find only wild violets woven through with rank spring grasses. Such is the desolate scene that once must have met the poet's eye. 
There is nothing more forlorn than that moment in the emperor's abdication ceremony, when the sacred word, the seal of state, and the sacred mirror are passed across. In the spring after his abdication, the newly retired emperor composed the following. The palace groundsmen have turned away from me, leaving these grounds unswept, where now the falling blossoms carpet the earth. How wretched he must have felt when all their busy duties for the new emperor distracted them from coming. Such moments reveal our hearts. Nothing is more affecting than the emperor's year of mourning for a parent. It is also dismal. The mourning hut with its lowered floor, coarse cloth replacing the usual brocade along the top of crude reed blinds, rough furnishings, and everyone in attendance wearing clothes that are much more austere than usual, even down to the different scabbard and its ornamental cord. At times of quiet contemplation, my one irresistible emotion is an aching nostalgia for all things past. Everyone is hushed and sleeping, and you are beguiling yourself through the long night hours by tidying away this and that, discarding bits of used writing paper you don't want to keep, when you come upon a page that someone long since dead has used for writing practice, or to sketch something and you suddenly feel yourself back inside that moment. Even if it is a long ago letter from someone still alive, it is moving to ponder when and in what year you received it. How melancholy to think that your own familiar things too will remain in existence down the years to come, indifferent and unchanged.